0: Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. you are always questioning, 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 tweaking, 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 where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company.
1: Like my friends, like, you think you're crazy. I think you've got to be a little nuts.
0: And change the world in the process.
1: We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur.
0: From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town.
1: Boise, Idaho.
0: In London. Malapal Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. I'd love to take a quick moment to tell you about one of our partners who make this podcast possible. SoftLayer, an IBM company. SoftLayer operates a global cloud infrastructure platform built for internet scale and provides infrastructure as a service to customers ranging from web startups to global enterprises. SoftLayer began as a bootstrapped startup, started in the founder's living room. Eight years later, they were acquired by IBM for $2.1 billion, and through it all maintained the belief that startups are what makes the world go round. SoftLayer's Catalyst program offers free credits for customized hosting across both virtual and bare metal machines, offering public and private clouds. Catalyst also makes it a point to provide a lot of support for early-stage companies. They understand that no two startups are the same and refuse to take a cookie-cutter approach to supporting Catalyst companies. Every startup gets personalized attention and feedback from a team of startup veterans and technical experts. For more info, check out softlayer.com catalyst. That's softlayer.com catalyst. Hey there and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind Podcast. Today we have a chat with David Zhu, the co-founder of Divide, which is a mobile enterprise company that made it possible for employees to separate their work and personal life on one device. Prior to founding Divide with partners Andrew and Alexander, David was the number one employee at Smule, the company responsible for number one apps like Ocarina, Sonic Lighter, and IMT Pain. After graduating from Stanford University with a degree in computer science, David went on to work at companies like Morgan Stanley, Jarna, and HP. Last year, Divide was acquired by Google, and David went on to become an engineering director on the Android platform. Let's listen into this great interview with David, interviewed by our Hong Kong chapter director, where he talks mobile technology, what it's like to be acquired by Google, and even the Chinese education system.
2: Let's talk about Google first, just a little bit. Let's just get that off the table. Okay. What's your favorite room at the Google offices?
3: In Hong Kong or?
1: Yeah, the Google Hong Kong offices. Okay, so I think I can actually talk about this. Um, So (laughs) I'm sure you guys have seen like online videos of like Google offices in general, right? So the cool thing about Hong Kong is okay, generally like all the conference rooms have a theme, right? So in Hong Kong, my favorite room is this room called Typhoon Shelter, which of course Hong Kong gets, you know, tsunamis and things like that, right? What's quite fascinating is that then on the wallpaper of Typhoon Shelter room is all dim sum, right? So imagine like you walk in, the, the room's called Typhoon Shelter. There's like, you know, like and like, you know, like basically all the sum food on the walls. And I think that's a fantastic room to, to you know, work out of, especially because you walk in and you just feel hungry.
2: Okay. So now that you're making us hungry, so tell us about the food situation. Can you talk about the food situation at the Google offices? So what, what's
1: the best thing in the fridge at the Google office? Um, okay, so I think, you know, that, 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 that's also a safe area we can get into. <laughs> um, so of course, Google is famous for you know, just effectively, it's like three square meals a day. I don't think you ever have to go hungry at Google, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what's interesting is, I mean, so I've had the pleasure of visiting multiple Google offices, for example, Mountain View, the headquarters, and also London and Hong Kong. Um, so cuisine is definitely catered to each area, which is nice. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you were to ask my staff, um, they would claim that Hong Kong has the best you know, Google cafeteria of anywhere in the world. But I think that's because you know, Google Hong Kong cooks Primarily to the Asian taste, uh-huh. right? So, you know, they get a lot of the local delicacies and, and just, you know, pretty much things you would find, like tea cafes locally, right? It's so a lot of just native stuff, which is nice. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's,
2: it's pretty good. Yeah. I went and visited David the other day at the office, and I got there just a few minutes too late to enjoy lunch, and, but they have this whole area there. and Then he's offering me ice cream out of the fridge. That's the first time anybody's offered me ice cream at a business meeting, but that was great. Um, so what a, what's your favorite perk of being a
1: Google employee now that you're part of Google? Wow, okay. I, th- I think that's, that's a hard one. Um, but I will say, and th- maybe, maybe this is going to sound really cliche actually, but um, I think it's, it's, it's the people, mm-hmm. right And I think for me personally, I've, I've always enjoyed the people that I work with, right? Um, even going back to like all my previous jobs and things like that, I think one thing I've always valued is the people I get to work with, and I think Google is huge at this point, right? I mean, they are really big. I mean, even though I think they try to hold on to a lot of that startup mindset, and so I think a lot of things they do internally, they do try to stick to a startup mindset, right? But in terms of just a share headcount, I mean, it's pretty humongous. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing is, you know, they have so many like deep industry experts that work there, right? I mean, come on, it's like, you know, James Gosling, right, inventor of Java works there. You know, Vince the inventor of TC5P, the internet works there. I mean, you know, there's really awesome, like in-depth people, ex- in, like, industry titans and giants that I think you know like you can try to get on their calendar for a meeting which is pretty pretty cool.
2: Uh-huh. Is there anything that surprised you that was unexpected about Google once you started working there?
1: Um, not really I would say I mean I think generally I knew that you know even though they are Google and they're certainly I think one of the you know premier technology companies in the world today they're still a big company I think going in I knew that it would not be quite like a startup right I mean obviously for example, their communications department. I mean, I love them Uh and they're fantastic, but I think, you know, they are a big company and they just have to, you know, be mindful of big company things. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and a public company too. Right, exactly. So, you know, lots of things you can't talk about.
2: Yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to when you were younger. Is there anything, looking at where you are today, is there anything, any moment, any event that you can look back to and say, it kind of all started with that? Like some exposure to old computers or something that... You say, wow, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here today.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I guess going back, growing up, I I was always kind of like a tech nerd, right? Um, Interestingly, and I I think this is a funny story I like to tell, um, so I was a Mac user, actually, for like a really long time, right? Like I started using Mac as System 6, right, before they had Multifinder. So literally, it was a single-threaded operating system, right? And I think my claim to fame is that I liked Macs before they were cool. You know, like, 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 I literally used Macs when people were, like, dogging on me for not having a PC, right? People were like, oh, this new game just come out, but guess what? You can't play it on the Mac. And I'm all like, oh. But, um, but you know, like, I've always loved Macs. Um, and, you know, I first started programming, actually, on Macs, right? So, um, been a Mac guy my whole life. But if you want to say, like, so I guess my interest in technology, certainly, I think, goes back pretty early days, right? Um, I remember when I was really young like this was BBS's right before I guess internet became really famous. So what year are we talking here? Uh, Early 90s Mm -hmm. right Um, basically you know like you know you would have to dial locally into your bulletin board right and then you know they would only have like one or two lines and if they were busy you'd have to like call back you know like 30 minutes later for someone else to log off if we can log on Um, and I remember actually playing a lot of door games as they were called back in the day basically they were like really early versions of like modern M- MMOs, if you want to think of it that way, right? Mm-hmm. But basically, they are games that are hosted at the bulletin board, but only really one person can play at a time, so you all kind of take turns, right? But it's still a lot of fun because you're playing against real people, mm-hmm. right? So like, you'll, you'll log on and maybe, you know, do something. And then next day you log on and you realize that your entire city has been taken over or like all your people got killed. And, um, but, but you know, it was, it was, it was great fun.
2: If you guys have no idea what we're talking about, go watch the movie War Games from the
1: 80s. It will educate you on all this stuff. So definitely showing my age. Um, yeah, so, so, so my first modem was a 2400 baud. Uh-huh. So if you remember how slow that was. They don't even know what baud means. That's probably true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, uh, it was like doing the internet
2: through fax machines or something. It was, it was a different time.
1: Yeah, and then I guess my first exposure to internet, I think I was lucky because my dad worked for the University of Arizona. Right, um, so he had an access to an email account, which of course he never used, so I kind of like took his account over, um, and that's how I was able to get on to the internet back basically in the early '90s, right? Um, and so I remember, yeah, so, so, I, so I'm one of those people that remember the net before there was a web browser. Um, so you know, it's just kind of like go for Archie, IRC channels, maybe back when the net was pure, if you want to think of it that way, right? Um, but you know, it's just you know very, very kind of early technology exposure in that sense.
2: Mm-hmm. So how old were you when you first got a taste of actual
1: programming? Um, so I think I started programming mm-hmm. in middle school. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that, like 12, 13, roughly, is that right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first
2: time you did some programming or hacking or something, you're like, wow, this works. Like, I made
1: something that works. Yeah, um, so, so I mean, so the first language I ever learned was basic. Yes, um, I neither. think. However, um, my middle school teacher at the time was very proud, because if you guys remember, BASIC is, is, is classically assign, you know, associated with, with, with having line numbers, right? It's like 10 something, 20 something, and, and you know you can do go to 10, which you know, in modern programming language, like, don't ever use go to statements, right? But back in the day, they did that. Um, but my teacher, I guess, was kind of forward thinking in the sense that he didn't teach us BASIC in sense. He actually made us write functions, which was you know a big deal for BASIC mm-hmm. back then. So. Um, you know, I learned BASIC, then I did PASCAL next, and then I did, eventually did C, so that's kind of how it all started.
2: Cool. So what do you think is exciting today for kids that are growing up? We have a young guy here. How old is your son? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We've got a 6-year-old here listening to this presentation, so what do you think is exciting about these young kids who
1: are growing up today and the opportunities they have? Yeah, I mean, well, I think technology is so pervasive now, all right? I mean, because, you know, for myself, so I have two boys, um, a four-year-old and a six-year-old, mm-hmm. right? Um, obviously, and I guess, so one thing I'll just say is, I mean, maybe this makes me a terrible parent. Um, so my son learned how to, like, swipe to unlock the iPhone at, like, one years old, <laughs> right? So, you know, like, he was just, like, clamoring over my devices and causing all sorts of trouble, like rearranging my icons and deleting, you know, like random stuff. It's
2: this pretty... is the real reason you invented Divide, was to give half the phone to your son and oh, half the phone exactly. to yourself. Huh? So,
1: so I think, you know, um, Divide, I mean, we can get into more is, you know, we started off thinking, you know, it's a nice split between, you know, kind of work and personal, right? But I think in reality, I was really going for kid mode, you know, so right. I can basically have, <laughs> all my kid safe stuff partitioned off and he doesn't have to like, you know, randomly calling people or deleting my business emails and things like that, so. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, maybe this is a good segue. So, let's talk about Divide. So, uh, how did it all get started? You guys were working together at Morgan Stanley, right, the three of you founders. Tell us about that whole story, how it got started, what were the first conversations?
1: Yeah. So, so. I think I'm very lucky because my co-founders I've known for you know like almost like ten years, a decade before we kind of started. So I think there was a lot of just you know good working relationship and trust, right? And I think so. If you really want to kind of go back to the beginning, um, a lot of this, as you alluded to, did come from our frustrations of having worked at Morgan Stanley, actually. Um, so, if you guys remember, you know, there's this company called BlackBerry. They actually were quite successful, um, and they utterly and completely dominated the enterprise space for well over a decade, right? And I guess just a little more geeking out a little bit, right? So my first startup out of um, university was a company by the name of Jarna. Um, I don't know how much internet presence they have now, but you can Google for them, I suppose. But um, So that was a mobile middleware company that really allowed first generation, um, email calendar, contacts to be accessible on a plethora of like devices including like Windows CE I guess yeah, basically when Windows Phone was still called Windows CE way back when um, On the Palm Pilots and also on the first generation Blackberries, right? And I I guess a little bit of trivia is um, So the very very first Blackberries were actually mini 386 computers, right? So the chip inside was actually 386 and they ran on the pager network So they weren't even like true cellular devices Mm -hmm. if you think of it that way, right? Um, But yeah, so so we worked on the BlackBerry platform for a long time, right? And BlackBerry used to be the exclusive mobile platform for pretty much all enterprises in the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think because of that, I think we were fortunate. For example, we were on the customer customer advisory councils of Rim and Microsoft, and you know, given our position, in IT, we were able to kind of give them feedback, saying, you know, these are kind of the enterprise features that we wish you guys would put into your platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, they listen to us, but I don't think they ever truly moved quickly um, in terms of adopting some of the suggestions that that were put in, right? Um, And so when Android came out, right, um, we saw it as a very interesting opportunity because I think for the first time was an operating system that was open enough whereby you could change a lot of things, Mm -hmm. right? Um, For example, you know, if you want to change the dialer, if you want to change, you know, the wallpaper, if you want to change the launch, if you want to change all these things, you could actually do it, Mm -hmm. right? So that's kind of, our impetus to say, like, okay, let's go and try to do everything we ever wanted to put into a true, enter- like, mobile enterprise product, and then take Android engines and see where we can go with it. But your first
2: idea wasn't Divide; it was something else entirely, right? That um, you were working on before.
1: With my existing co-founders, or is it is is, is that what you're alluding to, or well? Was with your co-founders was Divide the first idea? Did you have this Um, idea and you said let's go do this, or was there a pivot in there somewhere? Yeah. So, so again, I I guess it's it's there's really no clear delineation in the sense that like I've known these guys for a long time, Uh right? So even before Divide, you know, we would just randomly get together and just like bounce ideas off of each other and do random prototypes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But nothing that was serious enough where, you know, we said, oh, let's quit our jobs, let's go and try to, you know, raise some money, let's actually try to make a go of it, I mean, those were primarily, for example, like, night and weekend projects, which I'm sure a lot of people are probably used to, right? Just, hey, I have an idea, let's let's just hack a little bit and, you know, maybe build a prototype and use it for, like, a week or two. And if you don't like it, it just kind of, like, died, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So Divide was the first one where I think we felt there was enough of a, you know, potential behind it Uh that we said, you know what, let's actually try to make a go of it.
2: It was serious at
0: that point. Right. A quick break from David in Hong Kong for some recent startup headlines. Dell has acquired storage company EMC for $67 billion in cash and stocks in a deal worth over $33 per share. Dell has reportedly issued equity bonds to help finance the deal. It would represent the largest ever tech acquisition in history, pending shareholder approval. Google chairman Eric Schmidt's-backed startup The Groundwork has become a major tech vendor for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, according to Quartz. It cites a $200,000 invoice for Q2 of 2015 from the campaign. The Groundwork is thought to be building comprehensive analytics tools for targeted ad spends and for reaching undecided voters. AngelList is set to announce a $400 million early-stage fund, according to the Wall Street Journal. Planned for a wide variety of interests with plans to roll out investments slowly. The first fund will be 20 million and then the second, 50 million. The fund would invest in all rounds and
2: backed primarily by a Chinese equity group. Let's get back to the interview. So then how did it turn from, hey, we're three guys with an idea and something here to turning
1: it into a business? Yeah, so, so I think here we'll probably get into a bit of the financing stuff, right? So I think one, looking back, I think one area again, where I think where we're very fortunate is that um, we have been in kind of the mobile enterprise space for a long time, right? And um, so we, just as everybody else, put together a deck, right? Um, hacked together some prototypes, and this was like Nexus One running Android 2.2 back in the day. Um, and effectively, we went back to some of our old bosses, right, and basically showed them and be like, "Hey, what do you guys think?"
3: Uh-huh. Right?
1: And I think again, I think we were lucky in that you know they knew us because of our previous working relationships, and they were also kind of in the space, so they're like, "Yeah, it looks like this thing has legs." Um, and then they basically filled out our first kind of like friends and family or bootstrap round, mm-hmm. right? So that was you know the convertible debt, which I think is a pretty popular instrument these days. So they just founded initial five hundred k of debt, and um, and then you know off we go. So
2: then uh, what was the next stage when in terms of funding? Because you had some larger funding rounds after that. What led to that? What allowed you to raise that larger round of capital?
1: Yeah, so so we so I think that so the first round I think we effectively closed um, early twenty ten like January right I think that's when because as you guys probably know I moved to Hong Kong the, around Christmas '09 so I came out here we incorporated the company okay so speaking of a Hong Kong company I guess we can go back to that a little bit right uh-huh. um, I think it certainly has a rightful claim in the sense that Hong Kong was the first place where Enterprise incorporated uh-huh. right Hong Kong was the first place where we actually hired a, you know rented an office Hong Kong's the first place where we hired our global number one employee. Um, Hong Kong has always been the largest office by headcount. So I think we do think of it as a very Hong Kong centric company, right? Um, that being said, the the HQ has always been in New York because I think in some ways it's much easier to have a standard Delaware C Corp company, especially if you're raising venture money, right? Mm-hmm. Just from you know from a financing perspective, certainly for the traditional Silicon Valley US VCs, that's just, just much easier for them to deal with. Mm-hmm. Right. So sorry, that was a random tangent. <laughs>
2: But now you had a follow-on round uh, financing, I think it was 11 million or something. Um,
1: right? Yeah, so we've done three rounds total. Um, then the one right after that was a 1.5 million series seed. Mm-hmm. Um, that was led by a wonderful gentleman by the name of Gail Beta um, from Genocast. Mm-hmm. right? Um, and that, that one we basically raised in the fall of 2010, so about you know 10 months roughly from the time we first started working. Um, so at, at that point, you know. So the first one you can argue, we really just raised on hopes and dreams and a PowerPoint, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The next round of money, I I personally believe, was the hardest round for us to raise because I think, you know, once you get the initial money, the next time you go out for money, you know, it's not hopes and dreams anymore. You can't just You better have something. Yes, I mean, you need to demonstrate a little bit of traction, Uh right? So at that time, as I mentioned, you know, we, so originally, you know, we thought Android is fantastic because it's very open. It allows us to do a lot of powerful things, kind of like at the OS level, right? So at the time, um, we took Android, we forked it. We were running our own version of Android. We called it ETPOS. Because back then, actually, so another funny thing. So back then we were called Enterproid, right? And really that's enterprise Android. So if you kind of smash it together, that's what we got. Um, but as you know, in hindsight, that's a terrible name because one, it's really difficult to say. Like no one can say it properly. Like people would say like "interprod" or you know, and, and then Alex, my co-founder, claims that it rhymes with hemorrhoid. So you know, just <laughs> this really, really bad connotations, right? But anyways, so so back then we were very, extremely Android centric, and also very kind of like at OS level, right? Because like I said, it would boot up and I'll say the little ETP OS, and it was, I mean it was very cool from a very you know geeky tech perspective, right? Um, so, you know, so, so that, and, you know, very early on, our business model, and you can see we were quite naive back then, right? Um, we thought that, hey, you know, we'll take Android, which is very open, we'll make it more secure, we'll add all these enterprise features on top of it, then we'll just go license to all the manufacturers, you know? Of course, everybody in the world would want to ship an enterprise-grade phone, right? So we thought that, oh, you know, we'll just build this technology, then we'll license like Samsung, LG, HTC, you know, kind of just go down, and that would be the business model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Suffice to say, things didn't really turn out that way, right? Because I think once we actually started um, showing people, i am certainly, like, all of the VCs and investors are saying, yeah, you know what, most people don't want to flash their phones to, you know, like, make an enterprise great, right? And, you know, I think dealing with carriers, sorry, not carriers, um, OEMs is not necessarily also the easiest thing in the world either, right? Because it's just a lot of complexity. And I certainly think, you know, most startup, you know, I think Conventional wisdom is that you want to do an MVP you want to iterate as quickly as possible, right? And when you really work at the OS level, it's very very difficult especially like I said if you want To get a new build and only we get a new build is to flash your phone, you know It kind of really slows things down a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Um, so so we had that and then when we went out and tried to raise money, you know Because we felt like we had something at least a little bit of traction, right? A lot of the feedback that we got was um, you know like you guys really need to think of a different way to kind of apply the technology you've built because, you know, the, like the go to market strategy was effectively not ideal, mm-hmm. right?
2: And was it investors giving you this feedback or who was giving you this feedback? Um,
1: investors and also some <laughs> of the early customers that we went to, right? Because, I mean, originally, Like I said, the business model was we would target the OEMs, and that's how we would try to make money from. But in order to convince the OEMs, we had to go to the customers saying, for example, like Morgan Stanley, like, well, you know, would you guys buy some enterprise-grade phones? And I think, for example, if we want to do a trial with Morgan Stanley, then we would have to flash their phones. And they were like, well, that's really a non-starter. Right. Right. Um, So, and and also, interestingly, so I guess, I mean, everybody probably knows, like we, so Google Ventures actually led our series, not led, um, Google Ventures came in on our Series A, Investment, they actually let our series be, mm-hmm. but um, so we approached, you know, Google Ventures even for that initial round, right? Um, and then, you know, Rich Miner, who is in Google Ventures, is a co-founder of Android, and you know, we, through our connections, we eventually, you know, got in contact with him, and and we basically pitched him. And I think actually this part—that's
2: a pretty good guy to get feedback. Pretty, pretty
1: good guy, right? and, and I think this part, if you read the Business Insider article, interestingly, you know, I think Alex tells a funny story in there about a call that we had with Rich, mm-hmm. right? Um, but suffice to say, he actually told us. Don't do it, right? Like, with you guys, like the path you guys are going down is like a path of no return, and it's effectively a non starter, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, credit to Rich, I think it's really good feedback. And then we then went back and um, and basically said, okay, we're going to take everything we kind of did at the OS level, and now we're going to move it up the stack and try to make it an app where, you know, it's just available in the Play Store, and anybody can download it, and it just will partition your phone into you, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think it's with that pivot that Gil was basically willing to fund us, right, because I think he saw that we had technical expertise, you know, like we could actually build something, right, but I think Gil at the time basically had, you know, some discomfort around how exactly we were going to sell and go to market, Mm -hmm. right. Once, you know, having this bunch of little conversations, um, you know, we decided to change kind of our technology direction, right. I mean, I I think the vision has always stayed true in the sense that we want to split people's phones, right, have basically like a personal side and a business side. It's really the implementation. Of, you know achieving that that end goal right um, and another funny story here is so so rich actually passed on that first round right uh-huh. and a lot of other VCS we talked to of course knew rich and they would call him and he'd be like what do you think and he'd be like well I'm passing right um, and then a lot of other people passed too uh-huh. but then interestingly you know GV came in on series A and then I think he got a lot of angry phone calls later saying <laughs> you told us to pass <laughs> um, but you know it's, it's a it's it's he wasn't expecting you to listen to his advice, huh? Yeah, so so it's funny because I think if if you were to talk to Rich, um, he would say like, wow, you know, you guys are one of the few companies that actually listen to me. And I was, <laughs> so I think um, obviously, you know, I think dealing with VCs can be tricky in a lot of different ways, right? Um, and I think you know, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, I think you do need to think about when you're going to hold firm and when you're going to pivot, mm-hmm. right? I think in this case, um, not that I'm really making excuses for ourselves, but I think that we stay true to our vision. But certainly in terms of the execution and the go-to-market strategy and how we realize that vision, definitely, I mean, I think that was the significant kind of transformation for us.
2: So when you're raising all this money, I mean, that's exciting. People like you. They're giving you money and such. But were you affected by that? I mean, were you thinking about the money or were you just saying, were you just heads down in the code focused on the business? What was it like at that stage of the business? Because a lot of people haven't been through that, but they think it's going to be so great when they get to that. What's the reality of being at that stage?
1: Yeah, like so this? so I think, you know, for me personally, right, and I think maybe this is just a first-time founder type of situation. I mean, I've, I've worked in plenty of startups, right? For example, at Smil, I was the first employee. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's still a huge chasm between a founder and even, like, a founding employee, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, maybe it's a confidence thing, right? Um, certainly, I think for a long time, I felt like raising money was, like, a goal in the sense that I think, like, I really wanted to raise money because I think it made us more comfortable in the sense that we feel like we're not crazy. There are other people who believe in the idea. So it was almost like a validation almost, right? It's more like, basically, I'm not the only one that believes in it enough that somebody else is willing to kind of like write me a check. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a big psychological. Initially, it's like we really wanted that confirmation. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think um, as time went by, for example, after we started raising subsequent rounds, I think the realization is that raising money because I think too many perhaps many first-time entrepreneurs see raising money as kind of like the end goal, whereas really it's kind of like the start of what you really need to do. Um, So I think for us, the later rounds were definitely a means to an end, right? I think, yes, of course, I think, and and maybe the tech press is guilty of this in the sense that I think, for example, a lot of the times, you know, there's all these wonderful headlines written about company X raises X a million dollars. I think that's very, very exciting, right? Mm -hmm. But generally, um, I think, you know, raising the money is good, but then ultimately, Raising money is very distracting. It actually takes you away from running your business because there's all these meetings and things like that. Um, So in reality, I think we were always very happy to raise the money and then put it behind us because then we can actually really concentrate on the business and building out the product. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: At what point did, and maybe we're getting into the area where you can either
2: deny nor confirm or talk about things, but uh, at what point did you realize, wow, we might be acquired by somebody like Google or some big company, and when did it get exciting that way?
1: Yeah, um so I think this part I can talk a little bit about. Um so so we had acquisition offers pretty early on, right? Even after like you know, like the first seed money that we raised and after we were series A. I think we've always had offers along the way and I think um in some ways it's always nice to be asked, right? I mean, like I kind of I guess a lot of people are using dating analogies for startups for some reason and I and like what I would say is this is kind of like You're the girl and and you're at a dance, so it's always nice when other people ask you if you want to dance, I suppose, right? So in some ways, um, those were always very, very flattering, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, we never really, I think, looked to sell, to be honest, right? Um, I think we... So it was a bit of a surprise when it
2: came along or the real opportunity came or, um, or you just weren't looking for it, but you knew people were out there?
1: Okay, yeah, this, um, So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that um, we have worked with Google for, for a long time, right? And not necessarily just on the, on the financing side, because I think when you look at the divide business, right, we target large enterprises, right? And as you guys probably know, most enterprises today are still use exchange. I mean, that's probably like 90-something percent of the market, right? But obviously, Google Apps, cloud in general is, of course, I think people think that's the future, right? Mm-hmm. And given that we have such strong Android technology, we've, we you know we, we've always had customers who were Google Apps users, right? So I think um, there was a natural intersection there. But again, I mean, that's just on you know business development side. I mean, that's not really acquisition, right? So um, in some ways, I think it's always very complicated in the sense that, like, so Google as just a huge entity. I mean, yes, they were an investor, they were potentially a business partner, and ultimately, you know, they did acquire us. So they kind of like filled all three roles. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, So that was maybe unique in some sense, maybe not. But I think, like I said, it's a very complicated situation. Uh, I don't know about. Did
2: it seem pretty natural, though, as it
1: progressed to that
2: acquisition point? Or was it, when it actually came down to that opportunity, were you guys blown away when Google came and said, we actually want to buy you out? Was it like, wow,
1: this is? Yeah, I mean, I think think we are very excited to be part of Google, right? Um, Certainly, I think that. For example, just quoting Android statistics, and this is all public, I like, can quote it. Um, you know, I think even at I/O this year, they say you know Android is now has a billion you know active users, right? And to me, the very very exciting thing about joining Google is that you know I think Divide as a standalone company, of course, you know we won and we had sales and we we're trying to close our enterprise customers, but I think to really truly do things at Google scale is, is very very exciting, mm-hmm. right? So.
2: Now you had about seventy employees when you guys got acquired. Is that right?
1: I think we're about seventy global. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: and now, uh, how did people feel? How did the employees feel when the acquisition was announced that you guys were going to become part of Google?
1: Um, what was the general reaction? Yeah. So I think I think everybody was was excited, right? And um, I guess maybe we can talk specifically about Hong Kong for a second since we are in Hong Kong,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, so I think the various startup events I've gone to over the years, um, one thing that I've constantly come back to is, you know, recruiting is hard. Mm -hmm. And I think you can argue recruiting is hard anywhere, right? It doesn't matter if it's Silicon Valley, if it's Hong Kong. (laughs) Um, But I think one thing I will call out about Hong Kong specifically is that, you know, generally, you know, this is a financial hub and the best and the brightest traditionally do not study tech. And maybe U.S. has this problem as well, right? It's like they'll go study risk management or finance and they'll be lawyers or doctors or other things, right? Mm and, you know here just as for example a lot of the startup systems back in, in, in the West um, you know a lot of the fresh blood that comes in are basically fresh graduates right out of the university programs um, and one of the challenges for me is that of course you know divide is not really that well known I mean, obviously over the years we've become gone bigger and gotten more PR which is fantastic right but for example, um, when I go out recruiting here in Hong Kong and I make something an offer for one of these fre- fresh graduates when they go home, you know, maybe they'll have a sit down down with their mom and dad and be like, okay, mom, you know, I have an offer from HSBC or, you know, or Goldman Sachs or Credit Suisse or, you know, some, you know, some investment bank and I have an offer from this company, Divide, which you never heard of, (laughs) right? And I want to go work for Divide and the parents be like, no, you will not go work (laughs) for Divide. Um, So, so, you know, I I know that's actually a very difficult conversation for a lot of the local students, Mm -hmm. right? And, um, I think I feel very lucky in the sense that, you know, they, a lot of them ultimately chose to work for us, right? So, for example, when we got acquired by Divide, I think it was almost a moment of vindication for them in a the sense that they can go back to their mom and dad and be like, see, I made the right choice, <laughs> right? Um, so I think that was very nice in the sense that, you know, they were able to go back and say that. Uh-huh. Um, well, not really, you know, I told you so kind of way, but I think, like I said, it's, it's more like, I think, you know, it gives them validation again, right? Uh-huh. That um, and, and hopefully, you know, I think this, Will serve as an example to other, you know, aspiring startups, other entrepreneurs in Hong Kong. Because I think, you know, it, it, it is difficult, right? Um, but certainly, I feel like the city, the ecosystem here, it has gone much, much better over the last five years.
2: Now, you came here in 2009. What originally brought you to Hong Kong?
1: Um, yeah. So, fun- funnily, then it's actually got nothing to do with the startup at all. Uh-huh. Um, so, so. Um, so so I am ethnically Chinese, um, but as you said, I, I grew up in Arizona um, where there's not a lot of Asians to be honest. Uh-huh. Um, I, supposedly I have a pretty good Spanish accent actually. Um, but, but anyways, um, so you know, um, I, I, you know, I got married and um, my wife, who actually is from Hong Kong, um, and um, actually both of my children are born here in Hong Kong. Um, but we all went back to the US, right? Because I think you know, that's where my career was, that's where my family was. Um, But after having two kids, you know, we had a pretty long discussion about how we want to raise them. And one thing that we agreed upon was that we want them to be fluently bilingual English and Chinese. And I also had friends who grew up going to Chinese school over the weekends. And let's just say their level of Chinese proficiency is not very good. And so we made the choice to kind of like pick up and relocate to Hong Kong. And that's how we ended up here in Hong Kong. Uh
2: Interesting. So what do you think are... Now, having started a business in Hong Kong, harvested a business in Hong Kong, uh, what are your thoughts on the startup scene here? The progress it's made. What do you think are some of the good things, bad things about the startup scene here?
1: Yeah. So I think you know, as, as I mentioned, I think I think it's come a long, long way, right? Um, so there was a panel earlier this week. Um, well, I guess maybe the audience won't have no idea what I'm talking about, but but basically it was a kind of a five-year reunion of sorts uh-huh. um, for kind of the startup scene here in Hong Kong um, and. You know, for example, one interesting statistic I was coded was that you know back at the end of, end of two thousand nine, there was zero co-working spaces here in Hong Kong. I think today, if you count, it's like thirty something plus almost forty co-working spaces. Um, there are a much more well-developed angel seed ecosystem here now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of startups have started in Hong Kong, then gone on to join, for example, like Y Combinator or five hundred startups. Um, so generally, you know, the system is developing here, which I think is fantastic.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, what do you think are some of the uh, core advantages that Hong Kong has for startups? What kind of startups can do well here? Do you think better perhaps here than in other places?
1: Yeah, I mean, generally, I think like one huge benefit that we derived from Hong Kong, right, is um, obviously I think there's a huge savings in terms of labor costs. and Just you know, the cost of engineering in Hong Kong just much much better, right? Um, I guess so. Going back to our Divide days, um, you know, like you know, we I mean we've raised a lot of money, right? It's 25 million in aggregate over over three rounds. But um, you know, even early on, after we raised the 1.5 million, um, our investor you know, commented on the fact that you know, our burn rate was effectively half that of a company half our size in the US. Mm-hmm. Right? So you know, that's pretty significant. If you think about you know, the amount of runway, basically, that it afforded us right? in terms of being able to like take our time or basically hire a bigger team than you otherwise would, mm-hmm. right? in terms of just growing the business and being, being able to iterate quickly. So I think that's a definitely advantage for Hong Kong.
3: Mm-hmm. right.
1: Um, and in addition, I mean, I think infrastructure here is fantastic. You know, really fast internet speeds, the wireless penetration is amazing. You know, I can use my phone on the subway and elevators and things like that, which is which is pretty amazing, right?
2: Yeah, we get a little bit spoiled with that. Yeah, here. definitely. Yeah. Um, so looking back at your younger self or a young entrepreneur today, what's some of the advice that you would have for people who are just getting started with their
1: businesses? Um, so I think one a device that I have, and I think you know, a lot of people ask me. And I guess we talked about earlier, is, You know, how did we come up with the idea, or you know, how did we decide to build Divide, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it is um, a lot of it is the fact that you know, like me and my co-founders, we have worked in this space for over a decade, even fifteen years, right? Um, now I realize not all startups are like that, but certainly I think when you target, for example, say the enterprise market, or you know, basically not a startup that takes a picture of your phone and sorry, picture of your dinner and share it with your friends. Having in-depth expertise or like domain knowledge in an area, I think, really helps, right? Because I think ultimately, I think that is what allowed us to navigate successfully through some of the really tough product decisions or you know choices you have to make to say you know which, you know who your customer is, what market are you really going after, what problem are you trying to solve, Mm -hmm. right? I think I think that served us really well.
2: Now you have co-founders. There are some entrepreneurs out there who say, well, I don't want to share. I want to go it alone. I can move faster. I can be more nimble. Uh, what do you think are the, what are some of the pros and cons about having partners?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are statistics out there saying, you know, like the number of co-founders versus the overall success, rate of of a startup, right? I believe the sweet spot is actually two, right? Um, in some ways I think maybe we're an oddball because we're three, Mm -hmm. right? But then you can also say that three is kind of the most stable configuration of a, of a physical thing. So I think in some ways, um, you know, for us, I think having three really worked, Mm -hmm. right? Personally, I don't think I would have been able to do this without my co-founders. So I think you know a lot of the credit and kudos definitely goes out to Andrew and Alex, uh-huh. right? Um, and I think also for us because we're three people, you know, each person had a slightly different point of view or slightly different area of expertise, and I think we were really able to use that to our advantage. For example, you know, Alex was like the most creative one, right? For example, like while Andrew and I might be kicking out some technical architecture, he would be like, no, you know, this is pointless if it's not easy to use, right? So I think it's nice to have some of those different points of view or counterbalances, especially when you're making some of these critical decisions.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Let's, uh, what are some of the, uh, was, there, was there any point in the business when you got worried about the business, or was it fairly stable all the way through?
1: Um, I think we were lucky, again, in the sense that, because um, I think a lot of times people ask you, you know, is there a moment you kind of look death in the face uh-huh. and, and realizing, oh my god, potentially, like, we're not going to make it. Um, I wouldn't say we had an existential crisis like that,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, but certainly I think um, like going back in hindsight, I think one mistake that I'll personally take accountability for is that, um, you know, we were very Android-focused at the time, right, personally, personally when we first started, um, and I, I resisted building the iOS version of Divide for a long time, mm-hmm. right? And as, as most programmers probably know, Android and iOS ultimately are pretty different in terms of what each platform allows you to do. And I felt that on iOS, it was, it, was, it was impossible effectively to recreate the amazing, beautiful experience we had on Android, right? So for a long time, I said, I refuse to build a subpar product. Um, then you know, ultimately, but then you know, once we try to go to the market, you know, most enterprises don't want to deploy a solution that only worked for half their fleet, right? They're like, well, it's great for my Android users, but what about this other platform over here? So, um, so, you know, so eventually, we did do divide for iOS, and it was actually quite successful. Right, and I think so one lesson for me there is I think it was unfair for me to compare kind of like Divide iOS and divide Android in the sense that it's really not an apples to apple comparison because ultimately Your iOS users doesn't care about the Android experience. They just want the best experience on iOS So in the sense that like once I kind of made that mental shift I think it made a lot more sense because then we just built the best divide we could for iOS and then you know That turned out to be good enough, right? Like it didn't it, it, it didn't have to be a port of Divide for Android onto Divide for iOS, mm-hmm. right? So lesson learned.
2: Yeah, great. What are some of the things that you think are exciting these days in the mobile space? What technologies are coming out that you think are the future?
1: Yeah, so we just had a conversation about this you know, before, before the interview. Okay. Um, I am personally very, very bullish on wearables, right? I think just mobile in general. Um, I think during the time of divide, I think, you know, a lot of talks I've given to people, this it says you know, death of the desktop, right? Death of the laptop, it's gonna be a mobile world, and it, and it is, I mean, I think smartphone shipments now outsell all desktops and laptops combined. Um, But I think it's only the beginning, right? I think that mobile is going to go in a much more personal way above and beyond even just smartphones. Because I think smartphones are getting bigger and bigger, you know, the screen size seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Um, They don't fit into my pockets anymore pretty soon. Um, And I think alternate screens and alternate, you know, like wearables or, you know, like glass or these other things I think will add themselves into our lives. And I think that'll make things just much more human in some ways because I think it'll be even tighter integrated with with, with everything we do.
2: Mm Does everybody who works for Google get free Google Glass?
1: Um, I don't think so. Though so then again, um, I guess historically, I, I think historically Google is very good about giving out Christmas presents, right? So I have no idea what's being given out this year. Maybe it's Glass, maybe it's not. I have no idea. Yeah, we'll see. Um, is there
2: anything that you're working on right now at Google that you can talk about that's exciting, or is that
1: all top secret? Yeah, I mean, so, so I think we'll have to stay away from that particular topic, um, but that being said, um, you know, I think things will be forthcoming, you know, shortly um, because, like I said, part of the excitement of joining Google is that we really do want to change the world, right? Wow. So I think, um, you know, there's no better place to do it than at Google, so.
2: Yeah. Is the, uh, is the company or your team, is it growing here in Hong Kong, is it growing in London or New York, or where, where did the team end up kind of settling, or is it kind of spread out all over?
1: yeah I mean so we're, we're we're still spread out. I mean Google is obviously <coughs> a global global company, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you know they have offices worldwide.
3: mm mm-hmm.
2: Okay. how many uh, can can you say how many of your team members were here in Hong Kong when the acquisition happened? Yeah, I think we're about thirty about thirty. Yeah. and are those people mostly still working for Google or Yes,
1: yeah, so I think um, yep, yeah, they're all at Google. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Awesome.
2: All right. Well, we're going to open it up for Q&A now. So what are the questions that you want to ask? Uh, what do you want to know from David about Google,
1: Divide, whatever? Question. Are you still on Mac? <laughs> um, yes. So I am still on Mac. Um, I am running Yosemite. <laughs> yeah, me
3: too.
1: Yep. So.
0: If it wasn't for Google, would you see your company being
3: acquired by someone else? And would you see yourself working for someone else?
1: Um. um I guess, ultimately, there's really only ever two kind of exits, right? I mean, well, technically three, so you can go completely flame out of business, which is nice, um, or you can get acquired, or, of course, you can always carry on live as an independent company. Um, and I guess, you know, going back to your earlier question of, you know, what kind of made us quit our jobs and kind of just jump in is I think, you know, behind this idea, yeah, I think, you know, if the stars aligned perfectly and if we really pushed and if we carried on, maybe one day we could have gone public. Right, but I think again, quoting statistics, I think you know the vast majority of startups nowadays are end up being acquired. I think like 90 percent, right? So um, I think for us, if you want to play the odds, I think we would acquire at some point, right? Um, but I think in terms of potential acquires, um, certainly, just speaking for myself, completely personal, I think you know Google is a very, very exciting place to work. Um, it's an amazing technology company. So I think in terms of where we call home, I think that's 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 very, very nice. So, yeah. what, what
3: do you think? where your kids will
1: go to school and from college for. Yeah, so so I guess um, as a parent I actually think about this problem a lot, yeah. right? Um, and okay, maybe I'm going to get political for they can start criticizing education systems. Um, so I think traditionally I think for example Asia or China gets 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 um, a lot of bad press in the sense that you know it's all like rote memorization, right? It's like you know the like the, the students don't really learn independent thought, they just regurgitate textbooks. Um, the entire education is catered towards basically taking the next exam to get you into your next school. For example, you take the test again into preschool, then you get into kindergarten, then you get into like you know, elementary school, then you get into like, right? Um, so so I think that's the criticism against the more Eastern, perhaps, education systems, right? Now, that being said, um, I personally believe that, for example, the basics, for example, like arithmetic, addition, subtraction, division, times tables, um, you either know it or you don't. Right? I mean, I think there's no ambiguity around, well, can you do math or can't you do math, right? Um, so I actually appreciate that kind of like early foundational type of stuff, which I think is actually good, right? Um, but then I think well, I think when you look at the pros, for example, of the U.S. education system, it's that um, you know once you're older, for example, like starting middle school, or high school, you know, there's all these clubs, right? You can do like drama or like start your own computer science club, or you know, you can go take universities at the local, you know, basically there's a lot more choice, and you're and you're encouraged to explore your intellectual curiosity and try to find what you really enjoy studying, right? Whereas, again, I think then the criticism is, in Asia, you know, you don't because you're just so obsessed about the next test to get you into, yeah. whatever, right? So me personally, my grand plan, if you want to call it that, is um, so my kids will grow up in Hong Kong. They'll learn the basics, um, and they'll learn it really well. Um, and then as they're older, they're going to go back to the States, probably, and then finish up their schooling over so there because-
3: You don't see any chance,
1: Um, I mean, ultimately, I don't really know what the education <laughs> policy of Hong Kong is, to be honest, but, um, but that's just kind of my high-level thinking of kind of, if, if you really have to take the best from both systems, right, I think that's what I would try to put together for my children. Yeah,
3: I see, I see,
2: some point yeah. thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, David, for coming. Let's <laughs> give him a round. Uh, thank you very much.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to the Startup Grind podcast. This Friday is your last chance to get two-for-one tickets to our global conference. Save $250 on your tickets to see legends like Mark Andreessen, Steve Blank, Clayton Christensen, Josh Ellman, and the founders of Instacart, Postmates, 23 Me, Juanilo, Joyous, PlanGrid, Cloudflare, and 100 more. Find out more at StartupGrind.com conference. That's StartupGrind.com conference.